welcome to Ivy League Murders, where we deep dive on cases related to academia. My name is Sarah Elkhorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. My name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami grad, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. In Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. So, Laura, we're back here in Coleraine, and it's just beautiful fall foliage everywhere. There's orange and red and maples, and it's just absolutely gorgeous out here. It's phenomenal. And if you're not in our Facebook group already, you should definitely join. It's a really fun community, and we post lots of pictures that have to do with the case or have to do with Ivy League murders. And we actually, I posted some pictures of of the view from our wonderful studio. Today, we were actually bird watching and looking at the foliage and talking about murder. We do have to give a shout out to the people who have bought us a coffee. And please, if you like listening, then please help us out and buy us a coffee or two. That would be great. And just so you know what that means, um, we, we, we actually have a donation link on our webpage. And we also um, set up something kind of new, buymeacoffee.com. It's also on our Facebook page and on our website. And you can just buy us a cup of coffee for $5. Uh, no contribution or multiples of is too small. And just to kind of contribute so we can continue bringing you good content. Yep, that's right. And we appreciate any and all support. Also, if you like the show, please subscribe give us a review or five stars it all helps so what do we have this week laura we're talking about the dillard case this is perfectly ivy league murders and has to do with harvard it does and um nancy and richard dillard seem to have it all they both had harvard degrees they had two beautiful kids they lived in the Park City, Sarah, the Beverly Hills of Dallas. So when Nancy Dillard died under mysterious circumstances at 37, it became a whodunit that would shake Dallas high society. So Nancy and Richard met at Harvard's Graduate School of Design in 1979. So the GSD, as it's called, has matriculated famous architects. And one of my favorites is Frank Geary. Five of the GSD graduates have won the prestigious Pritzker Laureate, which is basically like the Nobel Prize equivalent in architecture. I want to get back to Geary because Geary, to me, he's like the Gaudi of our time. Like he does the most fun, playful buildings. There's nothing glass block about his buildings at all. They seem to defy gravity. I posted on Instagram and on Facebook. So for those of us who are a little less knowledgeable about architects, let's just say it's the, one of the photos I posted was quite susical. It is. It's, it's, it's totally just, susical. It's susical. And then I also posted a building that looks like a looks like binoculars. It's called the binocular building. So his work is just really interesting. I I love anybody with a sense of humor and when they bring that into design. And I think that's what Gary does. He's like, 
hey, you know what? We're going to have some fun with this building and, and his stuff. We'll, we'll post pictures. And I right. think picture tells a thousand words, right? Well, and Laura? it's also just kind of interesting to know that, that not everyone who went to Harvard does boring stuff. Hey, 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 hey. He's <laughs> back there, partner. So Nancy and Richard met at the GSD in the early 80s, and they fell in love immediately. Richard Lyons was from a modest family from Mansfield, Connecticut, and he was the first person from his family who went to college. So his admittance into Harvard Graduate School was a real coup. Sarah, when he met Nancy, he didn't even have a suit. I'm only saying that to highlight the extreme social differences that they came from when they met. That's true, because in contrast, Nancy was from a prominent family from Dallas. So, Laura, when I first heard Dillard, I thought that they may have been from, like, the name Dillard. I thought that they may have been of Dillard's department store legacy. There's no connection. The Dillards made a fortune in real estate and were well-connected to the Dallas Hoy Polloi. You found out also that Nancy's father had gone to Harvard, and so she was legacy. So despite their backgrounds, Laura, Richard and Nancy hit it off. Instead of resenting the wealth that she came from at that time, he really embraced it and wanted to become really a part of the community that she was from. Didn't you read also that Richard's family, they were just kind of overwhelmed by the opulence of the wedding? Because by 1986, Nancy and Richard had married and moved to Dallas. They were quite uncomfortable by it, and they felt Richard was really considered an outsider. But Richard didn't seem to share that sentiment, and he was quite loved by her family. He actually was a very intelligent man. The odds of getting into Harvard from where he was from were very slim. And so the Lions, they were the Dillard Lions at this point, settled into University Park, which was a wealthy bubble in Dallas. They had two kids and their life seemed idyllic from the outside. Nancy had gotten an impressive position at Trammell Crow, which was a huge real estate developer in Dallas. It's sort of like the equivalent of like the Trump organization. Right. You know, think Texas, think big. I mean, this is big money, big development. But 1989 was a really rocky year for Nancy Dillard. Nancy was due to testify against her colleague at Trammell Crow in an embezzlement trial. And that same year, her brother Bill went into rehab. Yes, this is this is messy, Sarah. And, you know, we see this a lot at Ivy League murders where families really look so perfect from the outside. Nancy's dad was referred to as Big Daddy. Her mother was referred to as Big Mama. The children were all successful. As we know, Nancy was an architect. Her one brother had passed away from cancer, but everything looked really pretty perfect. But what comes out when he's in rehab is Nancy confronts him. This is Bill, her brother. Bill, her brother, who had a drug problem, Nancy confronts him about incest that had occurred when she was an adolescent, really a preteen through her teenage years. She accused him of sexually assaulting her when she was 11. So apparently Nancy's mother, Sue Stubb Dillard, had caught Bill assaulting Nancy and had kind of passed it off like, oh, they were just playing doctor. If you've been violated like that, 
that is going to cause you all kinds of emotional turmoil. And, you know, know, this is going to come up later, Sarah, and how valid this is. But this particular instance is well documented. Bill himself admits he minimizes it, but he does admit that there was sexual contact between him and his sister. Right. And remember, this is still 1989. And Nancy, she really had suffered years of just emotional issues due to the abuse. And at the same time, Richard was working for a contract manager. His work started taking him out of town. And you know what's coming next. Of course. Richard started having an affair with a colleague, Tammy Ann Gaysford. She was young, blonde. It just reads like a cliche at this point. But it was not a casual affair. And Richard bought Tammy a $5,000 ring during the course of their affair. Yes, Sarah. And Nancy found out about the affair in 1990 and Richard briefly moved out. Now, this begins a year-long ordeal of back and forth with Nancy really almost desperately trying to save the marriage. Now, let's also keep in mind that she had been suppressing years of sexual abuse. It finally comes out. So she's also dealing with that. She's also dealing with the work stress. And all this stress starts to take a toll and Nancy appears unwell to those around her. So was it just the stress, Sarah, that was affecting Nancy's health or was it something else? In September of 1990, Richard files for divorce and moves out. So in Richard moving out, Nancy seemed to regain some of her former verve and she starts talking about a future without Richard. Then Richard comes back in November and seemed to want to make an effort and reconcile. And you said that they were working, what were they, they were working on something in their backyard? They started his efforts involved doing all these projects around the house. They were redoing their yard. It was just really showing that he was committed to the family. It's true, but we wonder if in some ways Richard is addicted to that lifestyle. Not addicted. He enjoys that university park prestige. That's something that he really... I don't think addicted is too strong of a word. Okay, okay. <laughs> I think that he was in love with the connection to the name and all it brought him and the jobs. He had initially, when they moved to Texas, been hired by Nancy's father. So, I mean, everything in his life, he did get himself educated, but I'm saying all the trappings are really from her wealth. That's right. So after Richard moved back in, Nancy began to suffer bouts of non nausea and stomach pain. She seems to be ailing again. On January 8th, 1991, Nancy was admitted into Dallas Presbyterian Hospital after severe abdominal pains. It's actually Richard that brings her in. So there was a flu going around in Dallas at the time, and initially the doctors thought, hey, that's what it must be. And they were kind of baffled by all of her array of symptoms, but they did suspect poisoning. You had said that the doctors approached Nancy and, like, lifted her mask, and she told them a couple of stories that were... So, Laura, what does Nancy tell the doctors? They dismiss the flu, Sarah, very rapidly. I mean, her organs are shutting down, and there's no reason. There's no illness detected. So they know there's something. They suspect poisoning right away. The doctor gets Richard out of the room, lifts her mask, and starts to question her. And she tells him about a few instances that have made her suspicious. 
One is when they went to the movies and she detected a white powder in her drink. Another is when a bottle of wine had been left on her front doorstep and she thought it was just a neighbor leaving a friendly bottle of wine. And she had been recently quite ill upon Richard's return. At this point, I think that she had earlier suspicions, but at this point in ICU, she's putting it together. So I think it was also Richard's demeanor that gave the hospital staff pause. Did he seem like a concerned husband? Hardly. You know, he was joking. He was flirting with the nurses. So Nancy's organs are really starting to fail. And six days later, Nancy was dead. So the doctor's best efforts had not saved her. And they insisted on an autopsy and a toxicology screen, and they also called the police. Yeah, I don't even think it had to do with insisting. I mean, the minute she died, the doctors called the police. It was pretty much out of the hands of the family. An investigation was launched. It became criminal at that point. It did, but at first, Nancy's death was really understated in the local paper. She was a Dillard. She was only 37. Died suddenly can mean so many things. So many things. It can mean suicide. It can mean uh, embarrassing illness. Mm -hmm. Drug abuse. Drug abuse. Frequently, it means overdose. Right. So often we don't even question those type of deaths. But I think that the police antennae were up right away, and they advised the Dillards to kind of keep up appearances with Richard. But at the same time, Richard was firmly in their crosshairs. Do you know that Big Daddy even brought him over muffins once a week to him and his grandchildren to really keep up this facade of support for Richard? Oh, that's so funny. Meanwhile, Richard's girlfriend's car has appeared at the house within weeks of Nancy's death. And he's also spending quite a lot of money on the girlfriend immediately after Nancy's death. And time. Yeah, and time. Exactly. And time. So the neighbors see her. The neighbor's radar goes up right away. Yeah. Meanwhile, they do the autopsy and the toxicology screen found Laura a hundred times the normal amount of arsenic in Nancy's bloodstream, and her death was ruled a homicide officially. The pathologist also took, I found this interesting, took several segments of her hair at seven centimeters each. And I guess seven centimeters equals two weeks worth of hair growth. And so what happens is arsenic adheres to the hair follicle even as the hair grows out. So you can measure the level of arsenic exposure. Basically what they do, just to really simplify it, is if you take a piece of your hair out and you cut it up into like five pieces... They're going to examine each piece and they can tell by where the arsenic is on the hair, how long and when you were poisoned. That's right. And too, that's, when, that's, right, that's by like the chronology of the, right. of the poison. So the, lo- the further it is down on the strand, the longer ago you were poisoned. That's right. So although Nancy had ingested small amounts of arsenic months prior, like four months prior, the pathologist found a severe spike in arsenic consumption four weeks prior to Nancy. Death. Whoever the perpetrator was, who I won't mention at this point, I think was experimenting with the arsenic to see how deadly it was. And that's why we see these smaller hits of arsenic and of, what is it, barium carbonate? Yeah. Another poison that was attempted on her that didn't kill her prior to the fatal dose. And we have to say it is a horrible, horrible way to go. Poisoning somebody with arsenic 
I think kind of has this antiquated, almost Victorian kind of hideous way to go. You're nauseous, you're dizzy, your organs start to fail. It's unimaginably painful. I just remember last time I had a stomach flu, I felt like like I want to die. Right. And that's, I think, that, imagine that a hundred times worse. Exactly. I mean, when every part of you is hurting with, you know, unbearable nausea, it's unbelievable to me that anyone would inflict this on another person and, or and, that and, somebody would inflict it on themselves. Yes, exactly. When and, there's far easier ways. But I think that's why the doctors, there was a pretty severe flu going around right. in Dallas at the time. I think initially the doctors, that's what they had diagnosed sure. for. But Richard became the prime suspect and he was arrested in May of 1991. He was able to post bond and Part of his arrest was because in a search warrant, Laura, the police found a number of poisonous compounds in the Dillard garage. They also found orders for a variety of chemicals, including barium, carbonate, and arsenic. So witnesses at Richard's workplace said that they signed for a number of poisonous compounds that Richard had ordered. And he had also ordered a number of poisons to a P.O. box in his name only. Richard had an explanation for everything, and Nancy had apparently ordered chemicals as well. Indeed, there was one receipt from a Dallas chemical company for an order of arsenic trioxide, which bore Nancy's signature. Why had the Dillards both ordered poisons? I mean, are they architects or chemists, Sarah? I don't, you know what I mean? They were landscape architects, and one of the reasons that Richard posited for these compounds was that they had a terrible fire ant problem in their yard. So he claimed that both he and Nancy were working on a formula to rid their yard of fire ants. If anybody isn't familiar with fire ants, I have in Georgia sat on a hill of fire ants and I have very intimate knowledge of fire ants like they bite and it literally feels like your butt is on fire. They are so unpleasant. So if you have little kids, fire ants in the South and in Texas, they are a problem. But I mean, these are people of means and hire an exterminator. Yeah, but that's true. But they're landscape architects. Right. And so maybe let's just give the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they wanted to come up with their own formula for getting rid of these fire ants. The police did recover drawings about how to get rid of these fire ants with these compounds. I just think it seems a little excessive. And I, I think what the prosecution is saying is that Richard is ordering these compounds and he's playing around with different poisons and actually barium carbonate is one of the chemicals and so barium carbonate is if you dig down on it is actually it's sort of an inert compound unless it hits hydrochloric acid which is the acid which is in the human stomach and then it becomes poisonous it's kind of an interesting choice of compounds and also obviously everyone knows arsenic is poisonous as well so all of this is coming out and that the nancy dillard murder case is just garnering huge press like texas style People also wondered, like, if Richard did it, if the husband did it, then why did he do it? There was just wild speculation. And what was some of that? 
Well, I mean, Nancy was worth about $1.2 million. I think the money really was her parents. Not that that's not a good net worth, but I mean, the real wealth was with their parents. She had a $500,000 life insurance policy. I don't think money was the motive. I think, you know, Richard obviously had the ability to make money. I think the prosecution thinks the girlfriend's the motive and that Richard wanted the family connections and the prestige to continue, which a divorce would have wiped out. That's right. And so he just didn't want Nancy anymore, but he wanted the lifestyle. He wanted the Dillard name. He wanted the clubs. He wanted... Nancy was a member of the Junior League of all the right clubs. And we actually have a friend, David Cole, with the podcast. That's right. And David is Texan. I think he lives in this neighborhood. He lives in, his podcast is called The Coal Mine, and he's an attorney. It's a great podcast. And uh, so he kind of vetted this for us a little, and he said that they really were members of all the right clubs. And I think that that Richard really wanted to, he would have been kind of kicked out of all that if he divorced Nancy. Right. So then you also have Richard's defense attorney, who's sort of this swashbuckling kind of guy, Dan Guthrie. And Guthrie was promising like this Perry Mason reveal in the trial, which and this only titillated the press even more. The police had immediately ruled out suicide as a cause of death, but there were other suspects that were brought forth, basically. So in the beginning of the podcast, Nancy had, as we mentioned, Nancy worked for Tramwell Crow, and there was an embezzlement trial going on having to do with a company named Bagwell. And Nancy had received kind of a threatening note, like, do not testify in the Bagwell case, or it, like, things are not going to go well for you. So she had And your family. And your family, exactly. And the origins of that note have never been discovered. They have never been discovered. Then... The really explosive thing is that Richard approaches Dan Guthrie, his defense attorney, and says, look, I was going through Nancy's diaries, and I found these revelations about her brother's sex abuse, if perhaps, and it was kind of thought that maybe the brother was afraid that this would be revealed, and perhaps that was a motive to kill Nancy, and the brother becomes a suspect due to the sex abuse, basically. But This is the interesting twist in this case. The prosecution brings in a handwriting expert. And, uh, you know, something we didn't mention earlier is that when Nancy and Richard went to graduate school at Harvard, they used to work on projects together. And so they emulated each other's handwriting. Nancy picked up on Richard's way of writing so that she could write papers for him in his handwriting. So their handwriting was nearly identical. Now let's remind people, this is pre when you write, I mean, even when I was in college, we were typing papers and handwriting papers. So this is 79. This is pre-computers. That's right. I think our younger listeners might not understand why Nancy was handwriting his papers. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) This was a different era. And architects in general are very very meticulous about the way they write. So they bring in a handwriting expert who really gets down to the nuances of their writing. But before we should outline that in Nancy's diary, she writes about 
that Bill, her brother, was into wild sex. She says, are my emotional problems due to the sexual abuse that I suffered? She paints Bill as a threat in her diary. She does. And Richard paints and defense paints Nancy as a very fragile, unstable woman. However, the again, the prosecution brings in handwriting expert who says that this piece of the diary is a forgery. So it was Richard who inserted these entries into Nancy's diary. So Sarah, I'm going to pick up here and be kind of prosecutorial and kind of give my theory of what I think happened. That's if true. That, if that works. And, and you know, I, I think that Richard was playing with different poisons. I don't think we mentioned that also during the search warrant, they had found capsules that he was giving her daily as vitamins. And they found barium carbonite in those a few of those capsules. Right. So I think Richard was kind of playing for a while to kind of see what would work on killing her and what levels of arsenic would work on killing her. And that's why we see the final dose being such a heavy dose, that that's what he finally figured would kill her. So if you remember also the receipt for the poison that had Nancy's signature on it, that chemical company came in and said, that is not a real receipt from us. That whole receipt is a forgery. Right. So even though they couldn't determine whether it was Nancy's signature or not, that receipt was bogus. You can't lie to juries, Laura. You just can't do it. You lose all kinds of credibility by doing that. And yeah, I mean, you have the receipts for the poison. You have the girlfriend. You really have a lot here. The defense really falls short of that Perry Mason moment. And what they bring in being the diary turns out to be a forgery. Well, that's true. But I think the defense also lobbies this idea around of that Nancy was miserable. There's an interesting piece of evidence that Nancy had a lot of arsenic detected on her fingertips so that the defense brought this up and said doesn't that indicate that she's taking the arsenic and putting it into her mouth if there if it's present on her fingertips but the prosecution came back and said that I, I just want to make a little note about the prosecution. The prosecution was a woman named Sims, and she had blonde hair down to her uh, knees. And no, I, we're going to have to post a picture of this. I mean, it's like Rapunzel hair. It's Rapunzel hair, and it was, I love it because it's so Texan. It's like, just go big with the I, hair, Honestly, babe, it, you know, I, I you found know. the hair, and I'm a prosecution person, yeah. to be such a distraction. Oh, yeah, no. The I mean, the, I, the, like, there were comments uh, about it, like, here comes the hair again. There's the hair flip. (laughs) I mean, she really distracted the jury with the hair. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's the stylist in me. Very smart woman. She did a great job. But but cut that hair. (laughs) Can we cut the hair? No, I love it because it's big. It's Texan. Go for it. I'm all for the hair. There's terrible split ends. It's not even even, Oh, stop it. You know what? Laura, I can't do anything. I don't know. The hair was very annoying. But anyway, back to the case. I am a firm believer, and the arsenic was on her fingernails and on her fingertips from vomiting. That's what the, that's and what the prosecution, prosecution says. Right, and it makes complete sense. Being that ill, you'd sometimes being so sick, you would almost you would induce vomiting just to be relieved of the sickness. Or when you're that sick and you're vomiting and your hands are on your mouth, I mean, that's how I think the the, the arsenic got on her fingertips. And that's which right. is a very it, it, the other thing is, as we mentioned, arsenic poisoning 
is excruciating. If you are going to do away with yourself, even if it's to frame your husband, you're going to choose a better way to do it rather than slow, excruciating suffering. Right, especially I mean, over is, an extended period of time. On. I mean, Sarah and I, we like almost to pick cases where we can kind of take contrary points of view on that this was a hard one to do that on because Richard is just not a likable defendant and he really had no case. He had no case and when you lose credibility like I said don't lie to a jury they took less than 90 minutes to decide in they did not find him credible and he was found guilty of first degree murder and sentenced to life. Don't mess with Texas. That's all I can say. You know? No, don't mess with Texas. And, you know, we, we, I mean, there's so many articles on this. We read the case. We read the transcripts from the, from the trial. There's a forensic files. Dominic Dunn covered, you know. And in the jurors, just they they were almost insulted by his lies. Right. And he had no credibility with them. And they saw him as clearly somebody who was enamored by the wealth and the power and the prestige, but he didn't want the wife anymore. But again, very intelligent guy. And this was actually kind of brought up by the defense as well, Laura, that if a really smart guy is going to kill his wife, why is he ordering arsenic basically in his own name? It's all traceable to do away and then she dies of arsenic poisoning. Sarah, I mean, this is Ivy League murders, but one thing we have discovered is being intellectually intelligent does not a great murderer make. That's right. Actually, it tends to make people worse because they tend to be narcissistic and think they're smarter than everyone else. I mean, Richard didn't even try to. It always amazes me that these husbands or spouses, as you know, we, we've seen female uh, murderers as well, don't even try to put on some type of facade of mourning. I mean, he had the girlfriend sleeping over right away. Right away, he's flirting with the nursing staff. The thing I find hard to forgive is the suffering that he put her through. If you are going to, not that there's any good way to murder anybody, but poisoning is particularly cruel. The suffering having to do with arsenic poisoning is just hideous. And I just, I think I see Nancy as really just a very fragile woman who really, I think the sexual abuse coming up recently put her in a very emotionally fragile state then to have her marriage falling apart. And I think many of us say, well, why didn't she leave him earlier? Why when she suspected poisoning? I think she was so much around her was falling apart. And I think she really wanted to give Richard the benefit of the doubt. I mean, who wants to believe your partner, the father of your children is slowly poisoning you? That's true. But I mean, don't bring me a soda in a movie theater with a bunch of white foam on the top and it tastes terrible. Okay, Laura, if we go see a movie when they open up, okay. If I do, it'll be something fun, I promise. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Ivy Leaguers. I am Margot, the creator and host of Military Murder, a true crime podcast where I discuss murders committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, I think you may have found your new favorite podcast. You've heard Laura and Sarah talk to you about U.S. Army Green Beret Jeffrey McDonald and the infamous McDonald family murders. Well, did you know that 10 years after the McDonald family murders, a different military family was affected by a triple murder at the same base, Fort Bragg? Yes, that was the case of the Eastburn family murders. 
Or more recently, have you heard about the Fort Bragg soldier who was camping with seven other soldiers during Memorial Day 2020 when he vanished into thin air? His decapitated remains found only a week later. The case involves a shady 911 call by the other seven soldiers and a family eager to get closure. These are the cases that I cover in an effort to elevate the military voice. Check out Military Murder every Monday on your favorite podcast platform. And with over 45 episodes in the library, you will have plenty of content to binge. See you soon.